The Bitcoin Standard Toolkit is a selection of Bitcoin services I recommend to my readers and learners on Safedean.com as they upgrade their monetary operating system from the fiat standard to the Bitcoin standard. These companies are NIDIC, a leading full-service financial services firm dedicated to Bitcoin, applying institutional wisdom and ingenuity to help clients access the unrealized potential of this emerging asset class. NIDIG offers the full suite of solutions needed for financial institutions to access Bitcoin, including custody, execution, financing, treasury solutions, integration partnerships, and more. The team behind NIDIG brings decades of experience in the financial markets and passion for sound money to help provide the rails that will bring about a move to the Bitcoin standard. I have been working as a consultant for NIDIG for two years now, and I'm very impressed with their vision, focus, and execution. Go to NIDIG.com to learn more. CypherSafe. To secure your Bitcoins, it is important to keep your seed phrase backed up safely, and for that, I highly recommend using the CypherWheel seed storage device, a gorgeous and brilliant sturdy piece of low-time preference engineering from a fourth-generation machine shop in Maine. The cipher wheel is machined from solid stainless steel and its unique and elegant design is inspired by secret decoder rings as well as legendary mechanical engineer Franz Rouleau and the golden age of machine design. If you've read the Bitcoin standard, you'll know I think the late 19th century was a golden age for many facets of human advancement because of hard money. Bitcoin is bringing hard money back and our friends at CypherSafe are giving Bitcoin the low time preference machines it deserves from the golden age of design. Go to cyphersafe.io to get the cipher wheel for your Bitcoins. Okay, coin. Whenever someone asks me how to invest in Bitcoin, my advice is to accumulate Bitcoins periodically for the long run or what is called dollar cost averaging. When you buy every day, week or month, you channel Bitcoin's volatility to your advantage. In the long run, this strategy will outperform every other Bitcoin investment strategy, probably, except for amazing luck, perhaps. The best place to do recurring purchases is OKCoin because they have the lowest fees for recurring Bitcoin purchases you will find anywhere. If you're stacking sats for the long run, every sat matters and the fees with each purchase will add up. That's why I recommend you buy that the lowest cost possible from OKCoin. OKCoin is also the Bitcoin exchange available in the most countries around the world, so it will hopefully be accessible for you wherever you are. Go to OKCoin.com to get started with your stacking. Not all one. As discussed in the Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin is controlled by the nodes that operate its software. It is only through consensus between nodes that the Bitcoin blockchain continues to live, and it is only by running a Bitcoin node that you are part of this consensus and can verify the validity of the transactions you receive and the ownership of your coin. Whenever anyone asks me what are the most important warning signs that something is wrong with Bitcoin, I always answer the following. If the number of Bitcoin nodes is declining and or the cost of running a node is rising significantly. I believe it is really important to run a node, but I don't recommend running it on your work or personal computer as it can compromise the performance of your computer and, more importantly, the security and privacy of your Bitcoin node. A far better solution is to buy a dedicated hardware node, and for that, I highly recommend Noddle. Manage all your Bitcoin activity, such as Lightning or BTC Pay Server, and isolate them from your personal computer by putting them into one dedicated device that is always running and does one thing only, Bitcoin. Become a first-class Bitcoin citizen by running your own Noddle node, available at noddle.it, and that's spelled N-O-D-L.it. Finally, cold card. My hardware wallet of choice is the cold card. I strongly recommend only conducting Bitcoin trades on computers that are dedicated to Bitcoin and cannot connect to the internet. I I like the cold card because it is a contained machine optimized for Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. Cold card is basically a small computer that can only do Bitcoin, which makes securing it more straightforward. Use the code Bitcoin standard on coldcardwallet.com to get a 5% discount. Hello, welcome to another Bitcoin standard podcast seminar. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Saladino, an MD and a carnivore who has written a book called The Carnivore Code, which explains his perspective on the carnivore diet. Paul is also active on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram. 
and has uh, made quite a splash in the diet world because he used to be a vegan and he's become a carnivore. And um, he's got some very interesting ideas, which I think a lot of our listeners are going to appreciate. So, Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Safe. All right. So, um, first of all, let's begin with a little bit about your uh, personal journey. So, you're, you were an MD and a vegan. Both of those things are likely to make you not a carnivore. So, how did you end up becoming a carnivore in spite of being an MD and a vegan? Yeah, I was not an MD and a vegan simultaneously, but I was a vegan for a bit of time. For seven months, I was a raw vegan when I was actually a physician assistant. So I had this sort of long, protracted health journey of my own. My father's a physician, mother's a nurse practitioner, was interested in going into medicine throughout college, and then took quite a bit of time off to explore the world, was ski bum and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, eventually went back to physician assistant school and practice in cardiology and quickly, quickly realized that the mainstream medical establishment was not something that I wanted to be fully uh, a participant in, that it was mostly pharmaceutical based and symptom focused. And it didn't seem like we were actually getting to the root cause of illness. Uh, and so at that point, I went back to medical school after four years of working as a physician assistant in cardiology. And then somewhere along that path, uh, medical school at the University of Arizona, residency at the University of Washington. I was in my residency at the University of Washington that I finally got fed up with my own autoimmune illnesses, specifically eczema. And I thought, you know, there's something wrong. I'm eating, at that point, I was eating a paleo diet consisting of well-raised meat, but also vegetables, fruit, nuts, seeds, mushrooms, which were in vogue and continue to be quite in vogue today. And my eczema was going out of control. I had eczema on my chest my arms, and my legs, and my shoulders, and my wrists. And it was just it was super frustrating because if anybody's had eczema, they know it's quite itchy and it prevents me from doing many of the things I wanted to do. So I thought there needs something needs to change. And at that point, I started thinking more about whether I needed the plants in general in my diet. Uh, and then eventually about which plant foods might be more or less toxic. And that was the beginning of my own carnivore journey, cutting out the plant foods. And lo and behold, going full carnivore for a year and a half, meat organs, fat, eczema gets a lot better, psychologically felt better. And then eventually I did reincorporate some plant foods, which we can talk about what I might consider to be the less toxic plant foods, specifically fruit and honey. People sometimes get triggered when we talk about that because of fructose, but we can try and draw some delineation there and talk about some nuance and fructose uh, thinking within mainstream medicine. But the, the, the overarching idea here is that the consideration of which foods uh, that I was eating were triggering my immunity was massively beneficial for me in my own life. And I think that now we're seeing that it's massively beneficial for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of millions of people uh, across the globe. And yet it's such a fascinating concept to talk about because it flies in the face of mainstream ideological thinking, which is continuing to demonize meat for a variety of reasons and uh, continuing to hold up vegetables and plants as these sort of uh, saviors of the world, when in fact, I think we've got it completely backwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously I agree with you, but uh, yeah, we will get to the fruits and honey in a bit. I uh, won't agree with you on that, I guess. But uh, <laughs> before we get to that, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your book. Uh, what is the hypothesis that you present in your book? So the book, the book was interesting. The book was written and published just before COVID, which seems like an eternity ago. 
uh, maybe a hundred years ago or so, um, actually in February of 2020, uh, was when the book was published. And it is, um, is you know, it, it was an interesting characterization. It was my effort to uh, really talk about the concepts underlying it. I started off with a discussion of anthropology and evolution, which is a fascinating, uh, really rabbit hole to go down, I believe, thinking about how we became homo sapiens, um, uh, how we become humans, essentially, from primates, from chimps and bonobos. And so it was it was quite interesting to, to talk about the anthropology, to look at that, to look at sort of the growth of the human brain two million years ago, and to see uh, that the human brain really grew in size exponentially over the last two million years after probably 80 to 90 million years of the same size as our primate ancestors, chimps and bonobos, and then not a whole lot of growth in the beginning of the Australopithecine uh, evolutionary timeline as humans. And then something happened, and there's really good evidence that something was the hunting uh, and scavenging of meat and organs, the consumption of meat, organs, and fat. So that was a really interesting thing to kind of lay out for people and say, hey, why do we think these foods might be bad for us? Just intuitively, if they in fact probably made us human by providing unique nutrients, unique sources of calories, there's so many unique nutrients in animal foods that you can't get in plant foods that have incredible uh, nutritive value in humans, uh, anserine, taurine, carnitine, et cetera. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Choline, vitamin K2, riboflavin. It's a deep, it's a deep well of uniquely uh, robustly represented animal-based nutrients. And then the book kind of moves into discussions of plant toxins, which are something we hear very little about. And I think that's probably the most contentious part of the book. Um, many people believe that plants don't have toxins or that the toxins don't affect humans negatively. And, and I've pretty consistently taken a different stance that, that I do think the toxins are a factor for humans. And that when we look at the net benefit of uh, most plant foods, um, the foods I would consider within the plant kingdom to be most toxic would be stems, leaves, roots, and seeds, really the parts of the plant that the plant is highly trying to defend uh, against predation, lest the plant's genetic lineage be interrupted. But, but I think that the, the risks of eating those foods outweigh the benefits and that we can get the nutrients and the benefits present in those foods, plus more uh, by just eating uh, meat and organs, or if we choose uh, opting for the least toxic plant foods. And we can talk about that. I know that's going to be a controversial topic at this group. So, um, and then, you know, the, the last part of the book or the last two parts of the book are about all um, oh, the myths around meat. There are so many myths about meat that it's going to cause cancer, that it's going to cause heart disease. And it was fun to really dig into those and try and debunk most of those myths, uh, especially the meat and cancer uh, premise and the meat and atherosclerosis premise. So these are really, really big sacred cows in Western medicine that all of this uh, thinking about the supremacy of animal foods flies in the face of really challenges. And then the last part of the book is about regenerative agriculture. And I, I will tell this to your group and I'll tell this to your listeners. When I, when I wrote the book, I, I didn't have the balls to question the overarching hypothesis about carbon dioxide. Um, I, I figured that if I, if I really went for the jugular, and, and I really did a deep dive and a deep analysis of environmental impacts of carbon dioxide versus what we actually know from engineering and environmental literature that people would lab label me a climate denier. And so I really just kind of took the easy, the easy way out of that equation and talked about the importance of sourcing regeneratively. And if we, if we do accept that carbon dioxide is a driver of, of uh, anthropogenic climate change, which is not something that I really 
um, have found a lot of support for when I've gone deeper down that down that path of investigation. Um, then regenerative agriculture is certainly a solution to that, and it's quite scalable. And that you know, I think most people will understand that raising cows, grass finishing, grass feeding, and rotational grazing is good for ecosystems. So we can at least agree on that. And just trying to obviate many of the plant-based arguments against meat and scalability and the ethics and the environmental impacts of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, there's a lot there. I wanted to just uh, get back a little bit to the um, evolutionary part of the book. So, what are the differences between us and uh, chimpanzees and bonobos that lead you to conclude that we're carnivores? What is the best case that you can make for that? Well, I think that um, I think that. Let me just I'll clarify my position. Um, and this is something that Mickey Bandor sort of helped me clarify. If people are not familiar with his work. He's a pretty pretty cool Israeli anthropologist who's written a number of papers on human trophic levels. And I've interviewed him on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health. And um, in his most recent paper, which actually talks about human trophic level and how to reconstruct, quote, hominid trophic level over the last few million years, he talks about omnivorous species and this, this interesting misconception about omnivores that when people say humans are omnivores, which is the widely accepted perspective, they, they generally want to sort of have this Michael Pollan perspective, like eat food, not too much, mostly plants. But if you, if you look at our evolution as humans, I would argue the complete opposite of that or the, the, the polar opposite perspective, which is that we, should, that we should eat mostly animals as an omnivore. And if you look at zoological literature, the majority of omnivores, more than 70%, either have a plant-based leaning or an animal-based leaning. They either eat, lean toward mostly animal foods or mostly plant foods. And so I think that if you look at the, the history of humans and where we've come from, from chimps and bonobos, this primate lineage, what you'll find is that chimps and bonobos primates are sort of plant-based omnivores. And suddenly, somewhere along the evolutionary timeline, probably around 2 million years ago, with the appearance of Homo erectus and Homo habilis, uh, it was much more advantageous for our ancestors, our hominid ancestors, to become animal-based omnivores rather than plant-based omnivores. And that shift, I think, happened with the appearance of hunting and these bifacial Acheulean tools and the unique nutrients that we got from hunting. But we have this radical shift from a plant-based omnivore because we know that chimps and bonobos and many primates outside of our lineage do eat animals occasionally. They will eat other uh, primates, they will eat small animals when they can get them, but they make the majority of their diet as plants. And so I think that there's a pretty compelling argument to be made that, that for the majority of our evolution, humans have made the majority of their diet or sought to make the majority of their diet animal foods. And that sort of puts into perspective this hierarchy of the importance of different foods in our historical past as humans. Um, I think that it's, it's pretty hard to make an argument that humans have always eaten only meat and organs. But I think it's quite easy to make an argument uh, fairly cogently, um, fairly, you know, fairly robustly as well, that, that our ancestors and currently living groups of hunter-gatherers prize meat and organs and animal foods above all other things. And that's really been what we have done as humans for millions of years. And that probably was a huge player in making us into the humans that we are today, allowing our brains to grow. If you look at the differences physically, there's a fascinating set of papers by Leslie Aiello uh, called the uh, expensive tissue hypothesis, which posits that as our brains were growing, our guts were shrinking. There's probably an energetic trade-off here and also a nutrient density trade-off. And so we get, we get much larger small intestines, which are uh, evolved for uh, absorption of more 
animal-based nutrients higher up in the digestive tract, and we get much smaller colons, which means that we can get six-pack abs, we have much uh, more acute angles of our ribs, we don't have these sort of commodious colons and bulbous intestines that many primates do because we don't need that. We have much smaller large intestine because we're not fermenting you know, uh, kilogram quantities of fiber every day into short-chain fatty acids like our primate ancestors. And with that, we have this energetic trade-off which allows for a growing brain and probably a nutrition trade-off which allows for the, the growth of neurons and glia and these myelin sheets and neurons and unique nutrients that probably allowed our brains to grow, which we obtained from animals and which are then absorbed more efficiently in the larger small intestines um, of our gut. And we know that so many of these animal-based nutrients do get absorbed much higher up in our gut. And so we see all of these interesting energetic trade-offs and we see parallels in the animal kingdom. There's a fascinating fish called the Peter's elephant nose fish, which is um, a carnivorous fish that has the, the largest brain and the smallest gut of any fish that we know of, I believe. And it's the same sort of energetic trade-off. Like when the brain gets bigger, the gut needs to get smaller because there's sort of this caloric ceiling. We don't just, evolution isn't going to favor a species suddenly increasing its caloric requirements by um, hundreds of calories or, or you know, tens of percentage points. That's going to make it much harder to, to survive. But if we can trade things off, we can become a different species and adjust. So we see that, those transitions. And then I talk about all of this in the book. There's all sorts of other transitions in humans that really point to us as primarily hunters, the shoulders that can throw a fastball 100 miles an hour or throw a rock at something or throw a spear or pull back a bow. These hips, the pelvic girdle, the way our hands are shaped, the posable thumbs, the way our feet are shaped, eyes that are in the front of our heads, the whites of our eyes. This is a fascinating conversation that I had with Bill Von Hippel in my podcast as well. The idea that if you look at chimps and bonobos or you look at primates in general, I did not know this. They, the sclera of their eyes actually dark. It's brown and ours are white and dogs are white. And so there's a hypothesis that we sort of co-evolved with, with canines being able to look at each other and communicate with our eyes. Uh, as opposed to primates, when they see the eyes of the primate, they can't really tell quickly which direction that animal is looking. And so we're very keyed into the eyes of our other humans. And uh, Bill suggests in his book, The Social Leap, that this is often, this is suggestive of cooperative culture in humans, potentially connected with group hunting and other activities, rather than competitiveness in primate cultures, where they're sort of not really working in groups to take down a big animal. But we have all of these adaptations which appear to really point us in the direction of humans are hunters first and foremost, always have been. And, and yet that's not the um, that's not so in vogue today. Yeah. We're sort of uh, encouraged to be, um, I'm not sure what we're encouraged to be. Perhaps we're just encouraged to be uh, psychophantic, uh, you know, um, yeah, Slave, uh, rule followers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I I find it interesting. You look at a gorilla, they, uh, they're strong and big, but they have a massive stomach and they spend their entire day eating plants and defecating, basically, um, because plants are mostly indigestible matter. So you're running your digestive system all day um, at full load in order to try and get uh, a small amount of nutrients. And that ends up meaning that the majority of the days are spent just eating. And I think... Uh, it's very clear that um, they're just, you know, the reason they don't eat as much meat as we do is because they're not good at hunting. I don't think a chimpanzee would turn down a ribeye steak if you gave it to them. There's absolutely no chance. And, if, you know, if you could get um, 100 generations of chimpanzees to eat ribeye every day, um, I think you'll see the chimpanzees get stronger and uh, um, smarter. Um, obviously, you know, they won't catch up with us um, very quickly, but... Uh, it, it's clear that, you know, their energy goes toward the digestive system 
because they can't hunt, whereas because we can hunt, we have a much smaller digestive system and we eat animals that essentially um, outsource the digestion problem for us. You know, a cow is just out there doing 24-hour digestion. A cow is just basically a digestive system on tiny little legs that take it around so that it can get food and keeps eating and pooping all day. And you're just getting the very tiny uh, amount of nutrients that it gets from massive quantities of plants. So I definitely think uh, that I buy that. And it's, you know, it's interesting. I don't think there's any species that would turn down a steak. I don't think there's any animal that would uh, not eat a steak. It's full of nutrients. They would all uh, eat it. I think the difference is the ones that can hunt and can secure meat and the ones that can't. And if you look at the ones that can hunt, you'll see they generally have small stomachs because they don't need them because they eat uh, animals that that are full of nutrients. I think there are probably, I'm trying to think, I, I... I'd have to dig into the zoology literature, but I'm not sure how many purely herbivorous species there are. Like I said, I think there's a lot of plant-leaning omnivores, but I agree with you. I think if you gave a steak to most of them, they would eat it. And and there's these hilarious videos. I mean, I don't know why anyone considers this surprising, but, you know, canines are clearly animal-based omnivores. Um, and people say, oh, my dog is a vegetarian. He loves vegetables. And I saw this on the talk show. I think it was a British talk show. And they're like, well, we'll see about that. And they bring the dog in and they have a plate of meat and a plate of vegetables and the dog just goes straight for the meat. And after these people are just waxing poetic and just, you know, singing the praises of their vegetarian dog, who clearly is just so virtuous, the dog just tears into the meat. And I mean, it's just built into us. And there's a study here that uh, I should tell your audience about that I think is one of the most fascinating ones I've ever come across. Uh, And I think it it basically ends all discussion of humans as herbivores or humans as plant-based or any any discussion of humans as not essentially uh, very meat-focused in uh, organisms. And they they put EEG, so they put electroencephalography leads on people's heads and they took a bunch of vegetarians and a bunch of omnivores so they could look at uh, the neuronal firing patterns in different regions of the brain. They could look at the cortex, which is more, quote, highly evolved region of the brain where there's all the, the, the invaginations and all the folds. And then they could look at the deeper regions of the brain, the thalamus or the, the brainstem. And, and they can look at sort of the, the motivational salience, so the relevance of these images that they're showing people to the vegetarians and the omnivores. And when they show the omnivores, pictures of meat, the omnivores have both a cortical conscious positive reaction and a sort of deeper positive reaction, uh, more of a like a limbic or more evolutionarily ancient positive reaction to the meat. But in the vegetarians, they have this cortical uh, aversion. They have this sort of programming that says, ooh, meat, not good, it's bad for me, or I don't like it. But the, the deeper regions of the brain persist with a positive reaction to the meat, which to me is just like you cannot out-evolve <laughs> You know, you, vegetarians didn't out-evolve their programming for millions of years. The deeper regions of their brain that haven't been, quote, brainwashed or propagandized realize that is still the most nutritious, most nutritionally dense, uh, most um, sort of deterministic food, like, uh, in, in, in a human's life. If, if a human gets more meat, a human is going to thrive. And by meat, I'm sort of saying that in the, the royal sense, and I mean meat and organs, because... When you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, they do eat nose to tail. And um, when you visit hunter-gatherer tribes like the Hadza, that's exactly what they say, that the most important thing in their life is meat. They dream about meat. The best day of their life is when they hunt and kill the biggest animal. 
The selection of males by females is based on who's the best hunter. Everything revolves around meat built into our sort of deeper brain regions and vegetarians can try and program um, and uh, propagandize their way out of that, but the deeper brain regions never lie. Yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating that all the species that have ever existed and all the humans that have ever existed have managed to figure out what to eat, uh, except for the people who have learned modern nutrition science. You know, they've, the, the only species that was dumb enough to come up with an entire science in order to justify horrific dietary choices and then give itself all kinds of diseases is humans, at least not all humans. But it really takes something special because for the vast majority of all humans and animals, you know, they just follow their instinct when it comes to food and that serves them fine. You know, your body knows what it wants. You listen to your instinct. I remember, you know, when my kids are born, it's actually astonishing to watch uh, a, a two minute old child uh, know how to feed. You know, it's, 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 it's one of the most amazing things I've seen in my life. Uh, to to see that how this is just programmed in them. And I think, um, you know, being a carnivore has kind of made me, turn me off from reading anything about nutrition science because I just find it to be, um, it's, it, it's something that's very instinctive and you know how to do it. And, you know, you just eat as much meat as you can and then you'll be healthy and happy and strong. And in my mind, if you, you know, there are more interesting things for your mind to be doing than um, <laughs> looking for all the new stuff on PubMed and figuring out, you know, what this study says about the interaction between this plant food and that plant food or the other. Like, just eat a goddamn steak is the motto that I've had in my life for <laughs> quite a while, and it's served me well. Saved me a lot of time in reading uh, nutrition books and uh, uh, PubMed and, uh, you know, getting into internet wars about articles. At this point, there's absolutely nothing that can be written in an academic journal article by a nutritionist that could um, change my mind. I mean, maybe not absolutely nothing, but it's going to be very hard for me to think that, uh, you know, the conscious medical and nutrition establishment that is trying to consciously, uh, rationally figure the answer out for what we should eat, I don't think they can do as good a job as my instinct. And I think um, many people can... Uh, do that. Um, you also write about Weston Price. I'm a big fan as well, and I mention him extensively in uh, extensively in my uh, forthcoming book, The Fiat Standard, which is now available for pre-order. So, um, what do you think of Weston Price's work and what it tells us? I think Weston Price was sort of this fascinating nutritional detective who lived at this interesting time, this intersection of sort of Western culture and what was left at the time of indigenous cultures around the world, unfortunately, in the last 90 or 100 years since his time, uh, we've seen the disappearance of many of the cultures, or at least the, the recession of many of those cultures to a, to a broad degree. But, I mean, his work was striking and is, and is a clear indication of the dental health, the jaw structure, and the overall health of indigenous cultures throughout the world who were eating non-processed, non-Westernized foods of a variety of sorts, and in comparison to the um, the rapidly uh, introduced westernized foods, predominantly processed flours, processed sugars, and processed seed oils, which were making super large inroads into um, quote unquote civilization. And so that's just such a fascinating thing. I mean, his pictures and his books are striking and speak for themselves. Um, and you know, unfortunately, 
there's only a little bit of that left today. I, I mentioned this earlier, but I went to Tanzania in February of this year to spend time with Hadza. Kind of wanted to do my own mini Western Price journey. This culture uh, has probably less than a thousand remaining true hunter-gatherers left. Uh, and they do live in Lake Yasi region of Tanzania, and you can go visit them. Uh, you go with a, a, a guide organizer, but if you are connected well enough, you can tell the organizers that you want the most legitimate experience possible, and they will take you on 12-hour hunts, and they will let you hang out with them for 16 hours a day, and they'll let you sit by the fire, and they'll let you ask them whatever you want, and you really get a sense of how these true hunter-gatherers are living and it was it was fascinating, and it, it mirrored a lot of the things that I've read in Western Price's work and that I'm suspicious about based on the work of others like Frank Marlowe, who had studied the Hadza extensively. And this is what I was mentioning earlier. When you sit with the Hadza, and I have sat next to them, there's pictures on my social media of this, and ask them, they, they clearly are focused on me every day they think about it. In their free time, they're making arrows to kill animals. They're not making tools to farm or uh, daydreaming about iPhones, or thinking about how they can help the women dig the best tuber. Um, they're thinking about how to kill the biggest animal and how to get poison to put on their arrows to kill a bigger animal. And they're a little bit worried about the encroaching uh, other cultures like the Datoga or the Maasai who have become mostly pastoralists on their land, which are limiting their ability to hunt. But yeah, it's, it's quite clear. And I think this anthropology perspective is, is a very valuable one. And if you look at uh, appraisals, uh, appraisals of their health. They're quite healthy metabolically. Um, and so I, I just don't know how, um, how people ignore this. They find all sorts of mental gymnastics. I mean, I appreciate what you said. It's, it does get a little tedious for me sometimes arguing with people online uh, about these things. And maybe I'm in the wrong line of work. But for me as a physician, it feels important that I at least try and champion this cause and, and talk a little bit about this health with others who just can't, can't understand it. But I appreciate your point. And I think that um, the proof is in the pudding for most people. And when they try shifting their diet toward a more animal-based perspective, they generally feel much better. And I, I think that the other piece of this equation that's often been left out is just plain common sense and intuition. Um, why would the foods that, that we appear strongly to have eaten uh, as the majority of our diets have always sought out preferentially be bad for us? Even if uh, a gasp, they raise LDL. You know, there's just so many interesting things here. Uh, why, would a comp, why would a lipoprotein like LDL be, be killing us when it, when it goes up with what appears to be a very ancestrally consistent diet? We, we never shied away from animal-based sources of saturated fat evolutionarily, so why should we now? And yet, you know, most of the people on nutrition Twitter would say, like, clearly saturated fat is bad for you. It's raising your LDL and killing you. And, yeah. you know, the list of names is long. And people who are in that camp. And it's just, I don't understand it. The intuit, I just, I don't, I, they've not, I think that the problem is they've not spent enough time in the wilderness and they've never spent enough time. They've never spent any time with any group of humans that's living in any way that resembles the way that humans might've lived. And of course the Hazza uh, are not a perfect uh, indication of that. I, I've sort of flippantly referred to them as like a DeLorean or like a, like a pseudo time machine that goes back 50,000 years or a hundred thousand years. They're not perfect. They have been influenced by humans. Um, but they're pretty darn good. They're like the best proxy that we have. And so that's exactly the kind of stuff that Western Price was doing. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think there's an element of um, a, a majority of people, I think, formulate their view of the world by reference to what other people think. In other words, you look around at people who look like they know what they're doing and who have positions of authority, people who are socially prominent, and you just hear what they're saying and you think this is the safe thing to do. And generally, I think a lot of 
um, a, a lot of our history is just human beings going along with, um, you know, because there's safety in numbers at the end of the day. You don't want to rock the boat too much. And it kind of works as a shortcut. You know, why think about things when you can just follow the leaders and uh, do what everybody's doing? For the vast majority of things, it works really well, you know. Um, don't jump off a cliff. You don't need to try it out and think about it too much. You know, if people tell you don't jump off the cliff, it turns out well. But of course, you know, people take it too far. And I think modern science is, um, modern nutrition in particular, has just gone way too far in that direction of having set up these um, thought substitutes, I like to call them, that are just uh, accepted as dogmas that you just have to stick to them. And they're repeated so often that the vast majority of people just take them uh, at face value and never question them. So LDL is one of these. Um, a balanced diet being a good thing is one is another one. It's just it, these are completely nonsensical. Like if you wanted to actually trace the story of LDL and think about it critically, you'll be able to dismantle it with somebody who's thinking about it honestly in 20, 30 minutes. And I think the same is true about the concept of balanced diet. Well, what's balanced? You know, how how much heroin should you smoke on your balanced diet in order for it to be balanced? Why should you include highly addictive things that are very hard to quit? You know, why should you have heroin or Pringles or all of these uh, very addictive things? Um, and then if the, something is actually good for you, why should you limit it? You know, uh, why should you be sticking to a specific amount of... So it's, it's um, yeah, these things just, uh, it's frustrating how they just survive. And it's actually quite uh, sad how many people's lives are ruined because they believe in this stuff and they, and, and they stick to it. It's like the, the, the fear of fat, for instance, is one of the things that's just most amazing for me. I've traveled a lot around the world and, you know, it doesn't matter how educated you are, how well read you are, how much you follow the science, everybody's afraid of fat. You know, meanwhile, they're guzzling liters of cola and uh, eating all kinds of junk, which you think, oh, well, it's just a snack. It's fine. And they don't see anything wrong with that, but they do see a lot wrong with uh, fat, which I think is is absolutely uh, amazing as a uh, as an uh, as an idea. And and nobody mentions the problems of plants. So tell us about some of the biggest greatest hits of plants. Or bef before I get to that, the point I wanted to make is that uh, you know being a carnivore is one of the things that um, requires you to break out of that kind of thing. You know, people are always saying LDL is bad and balanced diet and this and this and that. But you need to sit back and think through it from first principles and you'll arrive at different conclusions. And then it requires a lot of um, a, a lot of mental independence to be able for, you know, the open mindedness on the one hand and then the independence to be able to stand up to an endless array of idiots who are just constantly pointing at you and laughing and saying, ha ha ha, you don't know what I learned in my fancy university degree, which makes me know much better than you. And constantly just being willing to take all that. And that is my complicated way of saying that that, that, that explains why Paul is also a Bitcoiner. So <laughs> after becoming a carnivore, he's also taken the orange pill recently and he had me on his podcast to talk about Bitcoin. Um, so <laughs> do you have any thoughts on a lot, of, a lot of parallels there? Uh, and I've seen it, you know, and, and as you know, it's funny, I was talking to one of my friends about this, actually the friend that, that orange pilled me. And I was saying to him that uh, there's so many parallels. And of course, I'm uh, a neophyte in the world of cryptocurrencies, and especially with Bitcoin, but I listen to a lot of your podcasts and others. And I just feel like, wow, this is maybe this is the way that people feel when they're trying to navigate nutritional science. Uh, there's just all these different voices, uh, most of which uh, appear to be 
generally well-informed and fairly coherent at the surface. But uh, when I was talking to my friend and, and listening to your stuff and others, the more I thought about it, I, just, I agree. I like this first principles approach. It just doesn't make sense to be printing a bunch of money, to not have hard money, to have a corrupt central banking system, and to have all of these issues with your, your central financial structure. It just makes absolutely no sense. And it allows for massive amounts of corruption and disparity that um, could easily be remedied. I mean, there's just so much force that, that Bitcoin can do for good in the world. And uh, I see so many parallels with nutritional ideology. And it's totally true. I mean, there's there's people just hurling the, the most ridiculous vitriol at Bitcoin saying, we told you so when it goes down 5% and, and then they're silent when it goes up 14% in a week. And then, you know, in a year when it's probably more than 100,000, who knows, they'll be very silent and they'll continue to criticize it when it has another drop. And it's, there's so many parallels. And I agree, it's just, you have to be willing to think outside the box. And and if you're just always going to follow the, the school of fish, then you'll end up off cliff at some point with the rest of the lemmings. And you're just a, a sheeple uh, person, which is where many people are comfortable, but it's, it's fun to be um, at the edges of that, or at least trying to challenge that in the nutritional space. And it's fun to learn about the other side of the cryptocurrencies in the financial world. Um, otherwise, but yeah, there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so tell us some of the uh, greatest hits on that uh, plants have done on us. How have plants been harming human beings over the past you know, executive summary of the last 10,000 years of human agriculture? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I mean, we have to go back a little bit further, probably 400 million years further back to think about the fact that plants and animals have co-evolved for a very, very long time. And there's been constant chemical warfare between plants and animals through the entirety of that evolution. And, you know, it's not, I don't know why people imagine that all plants are edible and all plants are benign. It's sort of this, it's this sort of pantheistic philosophy, like plants are wonderful and plants are, plants are sacred. And I don't know where it comes from. And, and anything from the earth is good for you. And it can't possibly hurt you until you, step on a scorpion or get bitten by a snake or try and eat a plant or a mushroom that's going to kill you dead in five minutes. Um, you realize that's just a, a fairy tale ideology. But, you know, it's, I've often thought about this, like the scene from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where they walk into the candy room and everything is made of sugar and there's like lollipop trees and the chocolate river. And if, if that was the way that plants were, if you could really just walk outside and everything was nutritious and I could just take a handful of this plant and a handful of that plant, then there would really not be many plants left. There would be, there would be no ecosystems and this coevolution of uh, different kingdoms of life would never have proceeded as uh, delicately and as in balanced fashion as it did. And so, you know, it's, it's not really Wonka's like chocolate candy room. Everything isn't, you know, just edible and sweet and without any uh, overt poison. And obviously there's a lot of philosophical problems with that that analogy when you think about the problems with fructose and candy in Willy Wonka's room, but you get what I'm saying here. And so plants have, by necessity, had to develop defense chemicals of all sorts, all shapes and sizes. Some of them are, you know, digestive enzyme inhibitors. Some of them are frank poisons for animals. Some of them are, you know, hormonal analogs that are going to affect us negatively. Some of them affect the absorption of certain nutrients, but generally they're all aimed at dissuading animals from over-consuming them. And like you said, we as higher level predators, we as apex predators get the benefit from uh, herbivores doing most of the detoxification for us and doing most of the very careful selection of different plants uh, for us. And there's some fascinating literature, mostly by Fred Provenza and some others, about uh, animals 
wild animals or domesticated herd animals, ruminants like cows or buffalo, that are limited in their paddocks uh, at times, causing them to overconsume certain plants, leading to mass die-offs or massive sickening of these animals. I mean, even animals that are herbivorous, like a ruminant, um, for instance, uh, like a cow or a sheep or a goat or a buffalo or a bison, understand that they, they're not just going to eat one plant all day, every day. They're going to eat a little bit of one plant and a little bit of another, and you know, mostly cows eat grass. But if you look at sheep, they're grazing in the field and they're eating a little bit of this plant, a little bit of that plant. And if you look carefully at what's in a field, uh, it's not just pure grass. It's, it's grass and other plants. If you've ever been to an actual farm where they do grass feeding of animals. And so they're, they're already understanding that these plants have alkaloids and other toxins, and they're being very careful to select them and, and not overconsume certain degrees of these. And then, you know, if you look at the specifics, the, the big ones that I see and that I've outlined in the book are things like um, the isothiocyanates, which is a whole series of compounds, um, along with other uh, goitrogenic compounds found in the brassica family. There's things like lectins, which are carbohydrate-binding proteins. There's things like phytic acid, which is a large chelating molecule that, that creates negative mineral absorption and negative mineral flux. Things like oxalates, which are dicarboxylic acids, which appear to be problematic for humans. Some things uh, are problematic for humans even beyond that, like potentially salicylates in some people, though I think salicylates are not quite as problematic in many people. But the list goes on and on. There's just so many of these. And many of these are uh, polyphenolic, things like uh, alkaloids or terpenes or flavonoids, and they can have a variety of different effects in the human body. Um, the most, Probably the most well-known example would be something like resveratrol, uh, which is a, a polyphenolic compound present in the skin of peanuts and grapes and uh, a few other foods. Um, and the the compound resveratrol is produced in response to a fungus, the botrytis fungus. So it's, it's sort of the plant saying, hey, get off of me. This is a defense chemical. And it got popularized by David Sinclair and a few others when they realized that it, it activated a set of genes called sirtuins, which maybe were connected with longevity in mouse models or maybe could normalize uh, mice on like really crappy diets. But um, in most of the human trials that it's been done, uh, that's been studied, and it doesn't do much of anything good for humans, and they're using doses that are much, much higher than anything you'd ever get by eating normal foods. And in fact, it has some apparent negative effects like decreasing androgen precursors, specifically uh, dehydroepiandosterone, sulfate, DHES, and a few others in studies. So um, in one study, it actually worsened metabolic uh, conditions and um, doesn't seem to really have any effect on preventing prostate cancer, and yet it's probably still a multi-billion dollar industry for resveratrol. And so it's, it's a plant compound that um, probably we would have been exposed to small amounts of in our diet, but nothing that our body couldn't detoxify with the uh, phase one and phase two systems in our liver. But when we do massive amounts of it, just because we're trying to uh, crowbar open the door of sirtuins and longevity, which I think is a, a fool's errand, um, we end up with some apparent negative consequences. And then the isothiocyanates I mentioned are like Rhonda Patrick's beloved sulforaphane. And um, I have called her out before, and I'll just respectfully say that I appreciate her work, and I wish she would show up for a debate at some point in, in our lifetimes, but I think that she will never do that. Um, but sulforaphane is a compound that's produced when glucoraphanin, which is a precursor in broccoli, and other brassicas combines with myrosinase. And these are locked in two different compartments of the cell in a plant. And so these are only combined like a booby trap, like super glue when the plants are chewed. So it's very clearly uh, a booby trap. It's very clearly like a, hey, gotcha. You're going to eat my plants. You're going to eat my stems or my leaves 
for my roots, I'm going to make a toxin that doesn't exist normally. Uh, and that's going to be problematic for you. In the case of sulforaphane, it's, it's a pretty strong pro-oxidant. And it also is well known to be part of this series of compounds known widely as goitrogens and isothiocyanates that have varying activities at the level of the thyroid to inhibit the absorption of iodine. Isothiocyanates like sulforaphane are perhaps not the strongest. There's another one called goitrin, which occurs in things like Brussels sprouts, uh, which is much stronger uh, and actually uh, proven to have some pretty significant effects of the level of the thyroid inhibiting iodine. But the, the intention of plants is pretty clear here. They're not trying to, uh, to help you. <laughs> They're trying to get you to not eat their leaves because they want their leaves to be there so that they can photosynthesize and make roots and then make seeds, which they will spread the next generation. So uh, I, again, I just intuitively, I'm not sure how people get so confused about this. Um, it's not to say that you can't find some benefits to these compounds if you study them in isolation uh, with sort of a myopic perspective or a, um, a very tightly framed experiment like looking at DNA damage, because as a pro-oxidant, compounds like sulforaphane will trigger our endogenous antioxidant system, which is driven mostly by NRF2 and KEEP1, and so we'll make more glutathione. Um, but we can do that normally, and this is the problem, is that if you look at people contextually who lead a good life and are in the sun and doing maybe a moderate amount of exercise and be crazy and have enough nutrients, predominantly nutrients from animal foods, to make glutathione in their own body, vitamin B6, riboflavin folate, and the essential amino acids necessary to do that, then it's pretty hard for researchers to actually show that sulforaphane does anything positive. So this gets to be fairly nuanced, and I'm sure your audience kind of understands this because they're sort of in this carnivore space, and they may have heard me or someone else talk about it. So I apologize if this is redundant or overly involved. But the, the argument that I make with these plant compounds is generally that, that it, I ask people to really show me a net benefit in humans who are already eating a healthy diet. Um, because there's all of this contextual nuance. Like, it's one thing to show that a, that a compound can do something beneficial in an isolated study in, in a population that's unhealthy, but do we really know that it does anything good uh, net uh, in a population that's eating a healthy diet that already has the nutrients they need? And um, where are the people who are looking to weigh the risks versus the benefits? And there's very little literature looking at the negative side effects of these plant compounds. So it get, gets a little confusing in the literature because everybody wants to point out saying, hey, this plant compound does this and this plant compound does that. But if you dig into the other side of the literature, most of these compounds have a big dark side. You know, you could say, oh, resveratrol um, is going to activate sirtuins, which appear to have a reasonably beneficial effect on the human body. But then it has all these other negative side effects. Maybe it worsens glycemic control. Maybe it actually worsens metabolic health a little bit, maybe, you know, decreases androgen precursors, sulforaphane the same way. Like maybe you could get a little bit more of an antioxidant effect, quote unquote, at the level of uh, NRF2 and KEEP1. But when you actually dig into the net benefit, is it, is it anything? And then you're inhibiting the absorption of iodine and thyroid. Do we need any of these compounds? We're often ignoring the collaterally damaging side effects. So the list goes on and on, but there are many of these compounds. And I didn't even talk about lectins, which are really problematic for humans. Um, mostly occurring in seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes, so the plant seeds. And, and those appear to have some pretty darn disruptive effects on the level of the gut, which is, as many people may understand, at least widely hypothesized to be uh, ground zero for most autoimmune disease and most chronic illness. So if there's anything there you'd like me to elaborate on, I can do more, or we can move on to talking about something else. which is broad swath of the plant compounds. Yeah, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. As far as I'm concerned, it's just all plants. And I just stay away from it all. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, you spend a lot of time studying this. And I think, you know, it's great that people like you um, have all of the arguments to uh, confront the others with. But I I'd be lying if I said that I could follow because 
you know, I'm, I'm a very practical person. And so I take the lazy way out. And so I just, I just don't eat all plants. And that allows me to, um, to, to, to not have to memorize all of the horrors that they, uh, <laughs> well, and then, and then let's go back briefly to the, to the anthropology and, and, um, you know, this is a little tricky because I haven't spent years with the Hadza like Frank Marlowe did for his PhD thesis, but choose to do some other things with my time sometimes. But it's pretty clear that these hunter-gatherer groups do have a hierarchy in their foods. And we said they, they, they favor meat organs, they favor hunting of animals, and then they will eat, they will eat honey uh, when they can get it, and they will tend to gather fruit when it's available and seasonal. But they don't really go out celebrating that they can get pumpkin leaves or uh, tubers. I mean, they don't eat them, but they're not really excited about them. Um, and they, they don't eat the seeds of the baobab fruit very often unless they're uh, really not doing well in hunting. And so this is another sort of nuanced thing to just add to the discussion that many people will point to these hunter-gatherers and say, look at all the plants they eat. And, and, you're, and you kind of say, well, well, actually, if you ask them, like, which do they prefer? They, they always prefer meat. And uh, I suspect that a lot of times, and this is fairly well corroborated by the research, they're, they're only eating the plants because they're, they're not able to hunt the animals. So they're doing what omnivores do. They're doing what humans have probably done for millions of years, which is be very adaptable so that we can survive periods of scarcity. And I think that these small, small groups of remaining hunter-gatherers are looking at more and more scarcity and smaller and smaller game because they're being squeezed out. And so um, if they do eat pumpkin leaves, I, I've got to think that there's a reasonable argument to be made that that's just like a survival food as opposed to like a really preferential food for them. Yeah, and I think this is where the, uh, you know, we go from the kind of the mentality where let's uh, ape everything that uh, traditional uh, hunter-gatherers do versus a more practical way of thinking about it, which is it's not about aping everything that they do. It's about seeing how they're able to thrive on a predominantly meat diet and then understanding that, you know, they're humans after all. <laughs> they're no different from all of us. And so they will have you know, they will eat whatever is necessary. They get hungry. They don't always have uh, uh, ready game on tap to tap into. They sometimes have to make do with uh, terrible things. But I think the, the, the number that the 20th century has done on us is that it has convinced us that, um, you know, the things that we have historically used as a, um, as a substitute for food to tide us over, which our body can digest, but it's not ideal for us. It has turned things around entirely in order to, and, and convinced most people that what is essential for our health, which is meat, is actually bad for you. And what is completely inessential and likely quite harmful is what you need to be um, going after. And this is the tragedy of modern people because a lot of people think that, you know, uh, eating healthy is expensive. Actually, eating healthy is really cheap. I. Uh, you, you can do it, and I've met, you know I've written a, an essay on my website on safetydean.com/meat on what I learned as in, in five years as a carnivore. I wrote it last year, and uh, you know I give it's quite practical. It contains all kinds of cooking advice and uh, what to eat, and I, I, I explain that you can do the carnivore diet on practically zero dollars a day. If you go to your butcher, make a friendship with your butcher, uh, he'll give you some bones. And, um, you know, you can buy them for very cheap, close to nothing. And you can boil the bones and you can eat them. And they're actually extremely uh, nourishing and even delicious. Uh, you know, a little bit of salt, and they taste great after a lot of boiling. And they'll be quite mushy. And they're extremely nutritious. Um, it's, uh, and, and, you know, butchers throw away the most nutritious food. Like they'll throw away 
a lot of the uh, fat and a lot of the bones, they'll throw it away or sometimes it's actually used in farming. So they sell it to farmers who will um, make uh, essentially plant feed from it and put it on in the soil because it's got a lot of nutrients. But uh, it's amazing, you know, you go to the supermarket and you think about um, how much nutrients the butcher shop in the supermarket throws away versus how much nutrients exist on all the rest of the shelves of the processed food. And you, the supermarket might be throwing away more nutrients than it sells every day outside of the butcher shop. Like all of the plant food, at least all the processed foods, definitely, you know, all of the stuff that comes in uh, shiny plastic wrappers definitely has fewer nutrients than uh, all of the stuff that the butcher in the same supermarket throws away. And if you look at the cost analysis, I agree with you completely. I mean, how much nutrition is there in a pound of meat? And how much nutrition is there in a pound of chocolate, pound of wheat, or a pound of, uh, you know, kale? Uh, it's not even a question. You know, a pound of meat, even if you get grass-fed, grass-finished meat, $6, $8 a pound, well, good luck getting anywhere near that amount of nutrition in $8 of wheat. Um, you just won't do it. Uh, you can eat wheat until the cows come home, and you, you won't uh, achieve the same amount of nutrition. And but when the cows point, come home, you'll know, eat them, and uh, then you'll be all right. What's that? When the cows come home, you can just eat the cows and then you'll be all right. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, to your point, I mean, the organs are also a super cheap way for people to get, you know, very unique nutrition. If you go to a butcher, they'll often sell you liver for $5 a pound or less. Um, and you only need, I mean, a half an ounce of liver per day will, will radically change someone's life uh, nutritionally, even if they're not eating meat. So um, one of the things that, that my company, Heart and Soil, does is we make these desiccated organ supplements for people who don't want to eat fresh organs. And I think the thing that makes me the happiest is when I get a message from a vegetarian or a vegan saying, I don't eat meat, but I want to try your supplements as like a stepping stone. And I think that's really cool because I really believe that by them investing a dollar a day or less, in, in liver or heart or spleen or kidney or pancreas or organs that very few people are going to eat, um, but that are very cheap and are easily obtained uh, throughout the world, they're going to feel differently and that may help with their mindset change. And I think that's such a huge thing that it, I think you're right. Like if you go to your butcher, you can get free meat, excuse me, you can get free fat. You could probably get nearly free bones. You could probably get nearly free liver. Um, and then if you buy uh, the cheapest type of meat, which is ground beef, gosh, there's a lot of nutrition there and you're going to do really, really good for, I've got to say, $10 a day or less. And um, I think that most of the people listening to this can spend $10 a day on their food. And if, if they can't, um, then we have a broader discussion of like what the priorities are uh, in their life for their finances. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one common complaint is that, well, don't you get bored eating ground beef every day? And the answer is no. Like if you just know how to get your uh, ground beef mixed in the right quantities of uh, fat and uh, meat that you like and um, you know how to grill it or fry it or whatever it is it's it's actually ast astonishing how little you get bored of it like uh, in, in my mind honestly you get bored of eating plant food and, and then the need for variety uh, in food is because plant foods are boring you can't eat a, say, the same plant food three days in a row it gets really um, tedious and boring for you. And that's why people who eat plants have this idea that food has to be interesting and innovative. Every, that it's like meeting a new person every day and having, and it isn't, you know, food is nutrition. It's like building a house. In my mind, you know, when you're building a house, you're not looking for variety 
and you're not looking for entertainment. You're looking to build the house, which will then allow you to experience variety and entertainment in all kinds of other things that you do inside the house. But first, you got to get serious about making the roof and making sure that the roof doesn't leak and that the foundations are strong. And then the amount of fun that you can have in a house that's well built is orders of magnitudes larger than the fun that you can have if you treated uh, the building of the house as the fun activity. You know, if you treated the building of a house as a party, you're going to have a dysfunctional house in which you won't be able to have fun. And I think the same goes for the body. If you treat your body as, a, you know, if you treat your digestive system as an entertainment organ, as a way for your body to experience pleasure, that's an enormous waste uh, because this is essential for your survival. You're not going to be healthy and you're not going to be able to experience other kinds of um, entertainment and fun. Like you, you can have so much more fun when you're healthy than you can if you're not eating healthy. And that applies across all aspects of life, you know, whether you like to do exercise, whether you like to do outdoor activities, uh, whether you're uh, sexually active, all of these things become very different when you're, uh, when you're healthy. And so it's, you know, if you get bored from ground beef, the reason is you need more entertainment in your life than food. You need to find better ways of, you know, you need better nutrition and better entertainment in your life. Uh, you need to separate the two is how I put it. I couldn't agree more. I think that if we choose to use food as entertainment, that's any individual's right as a sovereign human, but uh, you're, you're then sacrificing anything you could build with uh, a, a more intentional diet. And so I think people want both. And I think honestly, eating a lot of animal foods gives you both. Uh, it's quite enjoyable and it will create health. But I, I like your analogy with building a house, but I agree with you. Uh, that if you treat eating food as entertainment, you will not obtain optimal health. And that's just a, a conscious trade-off that every human needs to choose. But I think people want to believe that it's possible to just always eat the food that, that gives them the most dopamine in their brain. Uh, most of that being processed food or food cooking restaurants, often in, in seed oils. And that's just not going to work for many people. And to your other point, or to, for anyone for that matter, uh, to your other point, I, I think that plant foods also get boring because of the alkaloids um, and this is something I experienced when I was a vegan. Uh, I was convinced that wheatgrass, and I, this makes me nauseous to even tell the story, but I'll do it because I appreciate you guys. Uh, I was convinced that wheatgrass was amazing. And so I grew wheatgrass in my house and I had a, a wheatgrass juicer. And every day after I got home from my run, I would juice wheatgrass and make a wheatgrass shot. And I don't think it took more than two weeks before I came home and literally as a vegan, somebody whose cortical response to this was positive, my limbic, more primal brain was like, put that shit down. That is not good for you. That, and I had clearly accumulated way too many alkaloids from the wheatgrass, um, the wheatgrass juice. It was just like, and to this day, I shudder. I would, I would never drink another shot of wheatgrass in my life. And so I think that plant foods also get boring because we start to, we're like the cows. We have this mechanism and we start to accumulate too many alkaloids, too many plant toxins. And our body says, you better eat a different plant food or you're going to get way too much of this and you're just going to start getting nauseous. And so this is the problem is that we try and make these plant foods disguised and people want to make these green smoothies where they combine super bitter, horrible tasting leafy greens that are not food for humans with fruit, which, you know, is sweeter. And we can talk about the fruit and it makes it a little more palatable. And then people are getting way too many leafy greens and other things that are creating, creating all sorts of problems for them. And so I think that I, I love what you said there, that I think that many people are coming from an omnivorous perspective 
uh, of getting bored with plants quite quickly because plant foods are quite boring and they can't wrap their head around the fact that you could eat meat every single meal as I have for, man, it's got to be definitely more than three plus four or five years now um, and never get bored of it. Never say, oh man, another ribeye for dinner tonight. I can't do it. And, or more burgers. And there's a great company here in Costa Rica that makes grass-fed grass-finished beef. And I've got a really nice grill here. And I, I love those burgers. I would eat those burgers every single day. Um, and I, but I, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to alternate with a ribeye or a skirt steak or whatever I want. But um, there, it's not, it, you don't get bored of animal foods. And the last thing I'll mention is my own personal experience. I, when I threw hike the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, many months ago in the year 2000, I was a young man and I didn't really understand the way that all of this sort of connected with each other. Uh, and I was trying to bring a lot of vegetarian foods on the trail. So I made a gruel in the morning of oats and buckwheat and flax seeds and millet, thinking that this will be my breakfast every morning. And, um, and then I had lots of other plant foods on the trip, whether it was like dates that I brought or peanut butter. Uh, I mean, you know, as a 20-year-old, which is how old I was when I hiked to the Crest Trail, or a 22-year-old, um, who, who in their early 20s doesn't think peanut butter is like the best thing in the world? Like that would be the, the most, that's like a pornographic fantasy just to get, eat peanut butter every single day as much as you want. But lo and behold, after probably a month on the Pacific Crest Trail, I was absolutely sick of that morning oat gruel. Um, I threw it out for the rest of the trail. I didn't ever want to eat another spoonful of peanut butter in my whole life, but I could not wait to eat my beef jerky and the cheese. <laughs> And the animal products never, ever got boring on the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, but the plant foods got ridiculously boring. And I threw out so much of what I'd made. I dehydrated um, a bunch of apples and a bunch of things. And they just got to be so bland and boring for me that I didn't even really want to eat them. Um, but I always wanted the animal foods. And I don't do cheese now. I think dairy does bother me. But it, it illustrates the fact that like this meat and this cheese, these animal foods, never ever got boring um, after days and days on the Pacific Crest Trail. It's just my own personal experience. Unfortunately, uh, and not intelligently, I, I shifted toward eating more processed food at the end of the Pacific Crest Trail. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a saintly human. And at the end of the trail, I remember I was eating uh, literally like eight ounces of cream cheese at a time on bread and Pop-Tarts. That was my food um, because I just needed something that was palatable. And if I just could just go back and talk to my 20-year-old self, I would just say, just eat more, just eat more meat, man. You'll always like the beef jerky on the crust trail. You just need to make a shitload of it. Yeah. Well, you know, since we're telling uh, embarrassing food stories, I'll confess that when I was a 20 year old, I used to drink something like two liters of Coca-Cola a day, every day. And that was just, you know, me having normal, healthy, balanced diet at that time. And you can get away with it when you're 20. Um, but then, uh, when I moved to the U.S. in my, uh, I was 24 when I moved there, but by 27 in the U.S., that's when I started not being able to get away with it. And I think it's particularly because the U.S. food is, um, it's, it, it's, it's a lot of high fructose corn syrup and all of this highly processed stuff. And that's when I started waking up and uh, eventually ended up going full carnivore. But I will say, I've always loved organ meat. And so you you get a lot of flack from people because you talk about organ meat. I'm a huge fan of organ meat and I urge everybody listening, wherever you are in the world, there's probably uh, a Lebanese butcher within driving distance of you. The Lebanese butchers are all, all over the world. The Lebanese are all over the world and their butchers are all over, all over the world. And they, I think, have the 
best culture for preparing uh, organ meats and raw meats. It's uh, it's absolutely amazing what they do with them. They prepare them really, really well. So if you go to your local Lebanese butcher, um, ask them for saudanaya, which is the raw liver. They cut it up really nice and they clean it up and then they uh, you eat it raw with little tiny chunks of fat. It's it's even before I was a carnivore. This was for a very long time. This was my favorite dish in the world. It's uh, it's really really delicious. But you have to clean the liver uh, quite properly and I still eat it all the time. Um, and I like uh, to eat brains and I like to I like all organ meats. Well, probably haven't had them all yet, but I th- I'm pretty close. So um, I'm wondering, do you think organ meats are essential? Because I, I enjoy them. I eat them because I have to, but I know a lot of people don't enjoy them. And it seems that quite a few carnivores seem to be thriving without having to eat uh, organ meats. What do you think? You know, I'll, I'll start the answer to that question with, again, a throwback to the anthropology. I've, there's no tribes that I've ever read about heard of or visited that only eat the meat and throw out the organs. I'll tell you, when we killed animals and I hunted a, 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 I hunted a baboon with the Hadza and we killed a goat. And in both of those situations, the liver was the first thing eaten and it was treated like, uh, like a Bitcoin, uh, to be honest, as it came out of the organ uh, animal, you know, it was, it was held with two hands and gently placed on a rock and, you know, guarded. It was like, it was in the most you know, secure wallet you could ever find and everybody got a little piece of it. Um, and it was like, wow. And the same thing with the heart and the the kidneys and the spleen and the organs were the first thing eaten. They never threw out or wasted the organs. They did give the um, small and large intestines to the dogs, but they ate the stomach. So the dogs are sort of the companions of the Hadza on their hunts. And I suppose they have to eat something. So they'll give the intestines to the dogs, but every other organ gets eaten from the testicles to you know, the ears, the tongue, to the eyeballs, to the brain. I ate, I ate uh, baboon brain with the Hadza one morning. And look at me, I don't even seem to have any symptoms of prion poisoning yet. So uh, talk to me in six months and see if I'm drooling. But um, it was it was great. And, and they, they clearly treasure it. And so that, that to me is a good indication uh, of the importance of organs in the diet. And then if you actually look at the brass tacks nutritional uh content of organs, they're often quite unique relative to muscle meat. Muscle meat is, is a miracle of nature and is incredibly nutritious. And there's not a whole lot of folate in muscle meat. There's not, probably not enough riboflavin for most people in muscle meat. Uh, there's not enough, there's not a ton of biotin in muscle meat. Uh, there's not much copper in muscle meat. Um, but when you start to eat muscle meat with a few of the organs, um, whether it's heart or liver, um, both of those have m- much higher amounts of riboflavin and much higher amounts of some of these other uh, fat-soluble and uh, water-soluble minerals that really complete the picture. And the interesting thing about organs is you don't have to eat a lot, but a little bit goes a long way. Like I said, even half an ounce of liver or the equivalent in a desiccated organ supplement is going to be really pretty much the sweet spot for most people. And it makes sense because when you have a liver of an animal, it gets divided among 15 or 20 hunters. You're not going to get a ton, but you might just get a little bit. But then you get into these unique peptides, which are less than 50 amino acid signaling molecules. And they're, they're very unique in different organs as well. And so the muscle has some, but one of the ones that's in vogue now uh, that's injected exogenously is BPC-157. Uh, and that's present in the stomach. So for instance, if you're eating tripe, or an extract of tripe, you're going to get naturally occurring BPC-157. And then you can look at other 
um, many other peptides. There's peptides present in the liver, there's peptides present in the heart, peptides present in the testicles and all over the place, which I think are probably uniquely beneficial for us nutritionally. So um, I, I find organs to be quite uniquely beneficial. Um, and if people don't want to eat the fresh organs, that's why we do things like desiccated organs at hardened soil. Obviously, if you're eating fresh organs, you're great. Um, but, but that was why I built the company, just to make it more accessible for people and to help them get as much nutrition as they can in just the, the freeze-dried organs. But I think that if, you, if you're with the Hadza or, or the Ikung, the Ikung uh, or any other tribe, you'll quickly realize that their organs are prized um, and they would never waste them. And they would gladly take your share of liver if you'll, if you'll share it with them. Yeah, I'll gladly take the liver. Um, I, I I think it's great. And I, um, uh, brains as well are absolutely delicious. Probably the most delicious organ um, to have is maybe the brain. Well, liver probably. It's 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 tough to decide. But I'm 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 still not 100 percent sure on it being um, essential because. I, I'm sure you've seen a lot of carnivores on the carnivore groups and on the carnivore blogs. They swear by, you know, years and decades even of just uh, ribeyes or just burgers. A lot of them have been eating this and they seem to be thriving. And, and I think here, you know, there's we can think about individual nutrients and according and think about um, the individual nutrient requirement. But in my mind, perhaps that is influenced too much by looking at the average um, standard American diet uh, victim. And, you know, maybe their requirements for some of these nutrients are much higher than uh, what carnivores need because um, standard American diet eaters are eating a lot of toxic stuff. And so they might require more nutrients because their absorption of the nutrients might be less. So that's why uh, organ meats are... Uh, very beneficial for them. But perhaps, you know, if you quit eating the plants and you're just getting the muscle meat, I think as far as I can see, you know, if, if the person is thriving, then maybe that's more important than the, uh, what we, than what we see in the, um, you know, in, in, in the labs and in the uh, metrics for how much uh, of this or that nutrient they should get. Yeah, I think definitely if somebody's thriving, it's hard to argue with that. I always wonder, could they feel better um, if they add a little bit of organs? You know, is there another gear that they don't even know that they have yet? We hear about that sometimes. This is sometimes like a vegan argument too. Like, <clears throat> look at Rich Roll. He's clearly thriving on a vegan diet. I think that's a joke. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that whatever gear Rich Roll has right now, he would have uh, five more <clears throat> if he added meat to his diet. And so um, I can't help but think that many of these uh, meat-based carnivores would do would do better with organs. And to me, I just don't quite understand it. It does seem evolutionarily consistent. It almost seems to be this like dogmatic battleground that I don't engage in within the carnivore community, which I think is already too dogmatic and closed-minded, um, where people are like, no, you don't need it. And I'm just like, why would you not even try it? I think it's going to feel better. Um, and then to be honest with you, I've worked with a lot of clients personally and seen their blood work. Again, this is not, this often does correlate with their symptomatology and how they feel overall subjectively, but I, I do see their blood work go in a negative direction when they don't eat liver or at least some source of folate and riboflavin. I see homocysteine go up. I see serum levels of folate go down and I just can't, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around rising levels of homocysteine. There's some pretty decent evidence that that's not a good predictor. And it, it just corrects immediately when you add 
even half an ounce of liver with folate and riboflavin, uh, especially people with MTHFR polymorphisms, which are quite common in many ethnic groups, the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme. So, you know, I, I, I'm, if people are thriving, I'm happy for them. And, and I think that a lot of them could do even better. Um, and in my experience working with people, just even a little bit of a few organs makes a big difference uh, in terms of laboratory analysis or physiology. Cool. I guess if I were to, um, I think the drawback perhaps here is that uh, a lot of people get squeamish and get turned off when you mention uh, organ meats. And then that's, uh, and, and then I think some people see that it might be more productive to just tell them to focus on getting the meats that they like. Um, because, you know, there's an, there's an enormous improvement that can be had if you just switch to your favorite steak. And if you can just afford to have your favorite steak every day, you know, you, you will benefit enormously. Whereas perhaps if you try and uh, convince them to have organ meat, they'll be less likely to move on to it. But yeah, I, I still got to take you to a Lebanese butcher one day and have some uh, raw liver, raw lamb river, liver specifically. And actually, it has, to, it, has to, it has to be in the Middle East, in the Levant in particular, because that's where we have what I think is probably the tastiest uh, local lamb. It's, it's the fat-tailed Awasi lamb, and it comes with a tail of like three, four pounds of fat. And that's really delicious fat. And that's the fat that they cut up and they put served with the liver. So that's... Um, it's, it's, it's quite different from uh, raw liver anywhere else. So I've got to have you over in the Middle East, in the Levant somewhere, and uh, give you some of that. Um, all right, so now, fruits and honey. What's the deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that we can have some, some, some conversation and share slightly different opinions on this. Uh, so I'll, just, I'll start with my own experience, which, which may just be my N of one. Um, and that was that, you know, after a year and a half of carnivore diet, meat, organs, and fat exclusively, and salt. Um, and in, to be honest, in the middle of writing my books, you can imagine the, uh, the, the no small amount of cognitive dissonance I was experiencing. You know, I just, I started to feel cold all the time and my sleep was pretty disrupted at that point. Um, and I just thought, you know what, why don't I just add back some honey? Um, it's made by bees, <laughs> which are potentially an animal. You could potentially, you know, if you really want to get into these sort of ideological philosophical arguments, I don't think honey has defense chemicals. I don't think bees are trying to uh, potentially put uh, defense chemicals in their honey. Why don't I just try a little bit of honey in my diet? And, and I just, I immediately felt better. And I wore a continuous glucose monitor from NutriSense. And I continued to check my labs very closely. And uh, what I saw in myself and what I've seen in many other people is that my fasting insulin actually dropped. Um, and my overall uh, area under the curve in my CGM actually dropped for uh, daily glucose. And so what you get is my fasting blood sugar dropped um, from probably the high 90s to the mid 70s when I introduced some honey. Uh, I would get uh, short, quick spikes with very low area under the curve when I would eat honey. And then it would quickly return to baseline and stay flat, with very low glycemic variability throughout the day between meals. Again, my fasting insulin, which was probably 5.1 or 4.6, then became 3.2 on numerous occasions connected with a C peptide that was, I think, 0.46. So uh, I, the HSCRP didn't move. And I, the only thing I felt was better. And so, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, hmm, 
all right, but I've read all of this literature about how damaging fructose is. Um, aren't I harming my liver? And it, it's good because I think all of these experiments then send us all down um, uh, research rabbit holes. And, and I found a whole set of literature on the benefits of honey, whether it was on oral health or uh, you know oral mucositis or oral candida or any of these things. And then you find, I found a series of articles looking at nitrate precursors in honey um, and saying and showing that when people were consuming raw sort of organic dark honey, they had increased nitrates in the urine, suggesting there's increased nitric oxide production. And then there's a really interesting study done in mice, which is again, a mouse study, so it's not perfect, where they can give things like glucose and sucrose and see indicators of liver inflammation and, and sort of negative effects in the liver, but those are abrogated when they give the mice honey. And you think, man, maybe there is something to this whole food. Maybe there's something to these nitric oxide precursors. Maybe something in the honey is mitigating the negative effects of fructose. And so I'm quite fascinated now by this juxtaposition in nutrition. And I try to speak more, and I'm actually going to be speaking about this more in the future, about nutritional reductionism. And I think that this, this, gets, this gets levied against us as carnivores and animal-based eaters as much as it gets levied against uh, me when I'm talking about fructose or anyone. But people want to conflate studies done with fructose and glucose or sucrose in isolation with studies done uh, in terms of a whole food matrix or a whole fruit or a whole honey. Um, and they, they do tend to look quite differently. There's some pretty good studies that are done um, with some fruit extracts. And this is something that would have been very challenging for me to wrap my head around when I was writing the book. And it's not something I put in the book. So I really feel like I have to uh, continually evolve and um, uh, you know, maybe write a, a, a part two or a, a, part, a second version. But it's just this idea that like you can give people diets with more fruit and see metabolic indicators get better. And you're like, okay, how does that happen? And you can give people fruit and see lipid peroxides go down. But if you give people diets that are high in fructose, you can see lipid peroxides go up. And so you said, okay, um, how do I make sense of this? And I know from my own experience that I feel better with, with carbohydrates in my diet. And I also feel better when I don't eat grains and when I don't get those carbohydrates from uh, parts of plants that appear to be more highly defended, maybe those seeds, nuts, grains, legumes, or plant leaves or plant roots don't really work well for me. Um, but it's just this idea, again, going back to the hunter-gatherers, that they do eat fruit and honey when it's available. And when I was with the Hadza, when we were hunting the baboon, they came across a hive of honey and they went ham on it. Like they, they just ate the shit out of that hive of honey and all the larvae in the honey. And there's a video of me on my Instagram eating a honeycomb um, from the Hadza and it has larvae in it and they were just eating it with me. And if you look at the Hadza, they are pretty metabolically healthy. They don't get diabetes. They don't seem to have issues. And so I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. Now, again, it kind of goes back to what we were saying about meat and organs. If you or anyone else is thriving on a certain diet, who am I to say, no, you should include these foods in your diet? But I, I think that this is the sort of overarching ethos which, which I've tried to discuss all of these concepts, whether it's carnivore or animal-based or anything, is like, I want this message to be out there for people who are still struggling who might do a carnivore diet and end up with electrolyte abnormalities like I did, um, massive cramping in the legs or sleep uh, abnormalities or uh, probably a little bit of hypothyroidism clinically. Um, and, and yet they feel like, okay, I, I went carnivore 
and, I, and my autoimmune condition got better. We hear this all the time. My joints got much better. My acne got better. My rosacea got better. My eczema got better. And I experienced this myself. I can't include fruit, but I'm having massive electrolyte problems. I mean, there were times, and this is just my end of one, but I've heard it to multiple people now. There were many times that I would wake up in the middle of the night with arrhythmias. And I thought that I was going to die. <laughs> from this, you know, I was probably having runs of supraventricular tachycardia or something due to electrolyte abnormalities. So I do think that for many people, um, a purely animal-based, a purely animal food-centric diet is going to be great. But I want people to also know that it's possible to move beyond that or move uh, laterally to a space where there are some, what I would consider to be less toxic plant foods that might solve some of those problems. And it's just been really encouraging for me to see a lot of people email us at Heart and Soil or email and say, hey, I'm loving carnivore. It's been a game changer. And uh, I wake up in the middle of the night and my calves are cramping so bad that it wakes me up. Or I'm having palpitations or I'm not sleeping well, or I just feel cold all the time. What should I do? And my answer is add carbohydrates. And more often than not, they're like, that's great. I feel, I feel fantastic now. Thank you. It's kind of this like really sweet spot. So it's why I've been talking about carnivore and then this, this lateral cousin called quote animal based, which is still a diet that's almost entirely meat and organs, but just with some of these plant foods, if you choose to include them, knowing that they are a lever and a lot of people tolerate them. Not everybody tolerates them. Not everybody's going to tolerate all fruit. Um, for instance, squash, which is technically a fruit, uh, tends to give me eczema again. But I can eat bananas here in Costa Rica and I can eat honey and I don't seem to get any negative effects. And a lot of the things that I was experiencing with long-term ketogenic diet seem to be... Um, seem to be much uh, improved. So there's that, that kind of like interesting middle ground. And believe me, um, if I didn't, if, if you thought I took flack for talking about a carnivore diet, look what happens when the guy that writes a book about the carnivore diet uh, now says maybe some carbs are okay. Now, all of my detractors, you know, everybody comes out against like, the carnivores hate you and everybody that hated you in the first place says, gotcha, see, I told you so. So I just think that there's there's an interesting nuance here and people can understand that there's kind of a spectrum. We're all trying to understand how to help humans get to better health. Um, and I think, you know, what you're doing is laudable. You're trying to help everyone get to, you know, really solid financial freedom. And, and we're just trying to help people improve the quality of their lives. And I think that um, though I've always found the saying, like, there's no one right answer for everyone, a little bit passe and a little bit too general, because I do think there are some overarching principles uh, that will be quite guiding. And I don't think that there are some humans who have this radical genetic mutation, which allows them to do well on a vegan diet. I think that there is some freedom for lateral movement for people. And when I've dug into the literature on fructose, at least in whole food form, it's been it's been quite fascinating to kind of... Um, to to ferret it out and to really say, what's the nuance here? And it, is fructose in uh, a raw organic dark honey the same as fructose in sucrose, right? Or sugarcane or um, or any of these things or fruit. Like, is this really bad for us? Or is is there something else in there that's, that's changing the way our body reacts to this, which is kind of fascinating um, whole food matrix type talk. Does that answer your question? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I find this fascinating, um, you know, um, I'm not much for burning heretics, so I'm uh, happy to discuss this. But uh, I'll tell you, like my personal experiences, if I have a little bit of fruit, I feel a little bit bloated. Well, it's not, it's not that I feel bloated. It's more that uh, when I'm when I'm 100% clean, meat only, I feel like uh, a Formula One racing car. You know, it's just 
perfectly optimized. Everything is perfect. Uh, it's it, it's it's optimized to make the most out of the fuel, and it gets the perfect fuel and it produces the best performance. And then I've not had any single plant food that I've thrown in and not felt a little bit. You know, my lap time goes down. It's like you 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 spike the fuel for the Formula One car. It's just I'm I'm not at my uh, peak level of performance. And so I get, I, I can feel it in my digestive system. And I feel, you know, it was much smoother when things were, uh, uh, when I was 100% uh, meat only. But also I think the other thing is that it gives me cravings. This is the other thing with sugar. And, you know, I think if, for everybody in our generation, you know, we grew up eating tons and tons of sugar. We are all Effectively, we're all like recovering alcoholics for sugar. Those of us who go into carbohydrate, low carbohydrate diets, we're effectively like recovering alcoholics. Maybe, maybe th this is the case for uh, it, you know, if we, if I hadn't grown up eating vegetable oil and tons of sugar and candy um, up until my late twenties, uh, and I'd lived my entire life eating meat and uh, fruit, maybe, maybe this would be optimal. But I think. There might be a case in my case where maybe the uh, metabolic damage that's been uh, taking place has uh, gone too far. So I'm curious, what is it you think that the fructose is adding to your diet? Like, why does it take away the uh, cramps? And uh, um, how sustainable is it given that it is addictive and that it's always going to make you want more? Uh, a couple of thoughts about that. So when I will mention this, like, Physiologic insulin resistance is real. Um, Long-term ketosis is a very finely tuned evolutionary state for humans. And if we avoid carbohydrates or we are in ketosis long-term, the body gets very good at partitioning glucose to testicles, the red blood cells, the kidneys, the adrenals, the brain, and spares glucose at the level of the muscles. So this is really well documented, and this is what is called physiologic insulin resistance. And this is the reason that I don't like using the term insulin resistance to describe metabolic dysfunction, which is what some people might consider to be pathological insulin resistance. There gets to be a little nuance here, but the many people in the health nutrition space have correctly pointed out that a ketogenic diet does make your muscles insulin resistant. This is how we survive as humans. And I don't think that's a bad thing. That's physiologic. Now, pathological insulin resistance is when your body actually wants the muscles to receive insulin, but because the fat cells are broken, um, and this is a fascinating topic that I've gone into in my podcast a bunch, they're sort of spewing out non-esterified fatty acids, and those non-esterified fatty acids signal to the muscle to become insulin resistant improperly. So that's pathological insulin resistance, but I think that that's the best verbiage for that is metabolic dysfunction. So when you are in a state of physiologic insulin resistance and you introduce sugar into your diet, your body is going to have this time when it like pulls into the pit on the NASCAR and all the tires come off and everybody's like, what kind of tires do we put on? Because we suddenly have a totally different racetrack. And this may not be the case for you, but it's possible. There is probably about a 48 to 72 hour window where your body is changing and all of this new transcription happens and you have to suddenly make uh, glucose transporters for this membranes and all of your muscles suddenly have to switch to become insulin sensitive. And so if you were wearing a continuous glucose monitor, which is like one of these things that goes in your arm and you're in ketosis, you'll see this phenomenon where your fasting blood sugar is, I don't know, 80 or 90. And then if you all day long, it's like a flat line. Some people are at hundred. It's a flat line all day. 
Uh, this is what carnivore CGMs look like. And then if you suddenly introduce carbohydrates, like say you were to have two tablespoons of honey, which I'm sure sounds like a crazy thing, but just hear me out in terms of the thought experiment, your blood sugar is going to have quite a significant response the first day. But over time, in the course of three days, I think you will see your body um, change in terms of actual gene transcription and actual physiology to the point where your body says, oh, we have been in a, a land with no carbohydrates for a long time. And suddenly we have stumbled into a land where there are lots of berries on the bushes. And your body says, oh, okay, I know how to do this. I remember how to do this, but it takes some time to adjust. So I think that the point of this is just to say that for some people, the transition from long-term to ketosis to including carbohydrates might feel a little rocky because there is some physiologic transformation that has to come out. Your little race car gets some tires and the pit, and then when it's good, it goes out and it's like, oh, okay, things are pretty good here. Um, in answer to your, your question, which is what do the carbohydrates add? They, they, they add a lot in terms of, like you suggested, electrolyte maintenance. And so there's some complex physiology here at the level of the kidney. But insulin signaling, though it gets vilified, is actually very beneficial for humans. Now, insulin um, excess, hyperinsulinemia, persistent hyperinsulinemia, when you have pathological insulin resistance and the muscles are persistently resistant to insulin, is a bad thing. You can get too much insulin. There's a sweet spot, right? It's a U-shaped curve like so many things. But targeted um, bumps of insulin are pretty beneficial for humans. They are involved in electrolyte maintenance. They affect glutathione signaling. Insulin actually increases glutathione in the human body. Insulin will also increase a lot of gene pathways that kind of say, hey, you are in an abundant state right now. You want to have uh, sex and make babies? Okay, great. Like We have abundance. It can change hormones. Uh, so for instance, my testosterone went up maybe 300 points. This is again total. Um, testosterone goes up sex hormone binding globulin comes down and um, electrolytes get much, much better because of the signaling of insulin at the level of the kidney. So I think it's really important to be nuanced and not black and white. And I'm not saying you're doing this, but I do think it happens in the ketogenic space sometimes with regard to insulin signaling. The goal, in my opinion, is not to have zero insulin signaling. It's to have insulin signaling, which is and tissues which are very responsive to insulin and do what they're supposed to do, and then insulin goes off. So insulin goes on, insulin goes off. And that is very beneficial for humans, like I said, at the level of the kidney, at the level of electrolytes, at the level of hormones, and a lot of different levels at the level of biochemistry, oxidative reductive balance, and physiology. It's not to have a constant drip all day, but it's to have these specific kind of points at which you introduce these things and insulin signals, that's okay, that's normal human physiology. And I think that um, everyone may have a subjective experience that is different, and I'm not sure um, what your experiences have been with different foods that have sugar, and I think it's important that we don't lump them all together. Again, I don't think that um, things like processed sugar are going to have the same physiologic response, uh, and we know this genetically, biochemically, physically, uh, as things that are more evolutionarily consistent like fruit. But I, I personally don't find them addictive and don't find that my clients and people I work with find them addictive. Now, Coca-Cola, completely different story. Uh, Aunt Jemima pancake syrup, completely different story, right? Um, pancakes at uh, you know IHOP, completely different story. Waffle House, completely different story. Um, but a banana, um, I think that that, um, it, like I said, it certainly may cause some bumps in the road if you're long-term keto and then you suddenly eat a banana, especially a ripe banana. But generally, I think within 48 to 72 hours, your body's going to adjust 
and you're going to become, the muscles are going to turn back on in terms of insulin sensitivity. The last thing I'll say is this, and we see this a lot in women who are pregnant, and if they are low carb, which can be really helpful for some people um, when they are recovering from a lifetime of abuse, this is nutritional abuse, um, metabolic dysfunction, because what we know is that when the fat cells are broken, and they're sending out all of these non-esterified fatty acids to the muscle cells. Um, if you put in carbohydrates, you're not going to do well because your body is just all over the place with insulin. So this is not to say that elimination of carbohydrates can't be beneficial in certain situations, but I don't think that it's the excess carbohydrates that cause the diabetes in the first place. There's lots of experiences, mine, indigenous cultures, where they eat lots of carbohydrates and don't get diabetes. I think that, again, this is another rabbit hole. The main problem with metabolic dysfunction has to do with the mitochondrial and cellular membranes, especially the fat cells, and interrupted signaling there, probably due to evolutionarily inconsistent levels of linoleic acid from things like seed oils. That's probably the main driver, in my opinion. And then you add carbohydrates on top of that, but it didn't cause the fire. So you can put wood in the fire, it'll stoke the fire, but it wasn't the spark. And in the setting of a blazing fire, you don't want to put a bunch of wood on it. You might want to remove the carbs temporarily or long-term, but, you know, Women uh, who are pregnant sometimes go low carb and they will fail their oral glucose tolerance test um, because they are physiologically insulin resistant when you're low carb. And you could even take a man who's not pregnant, but usually men don't get OGTTs. It's women usually get OGTTs in their pregnancy. So you could do an oral glucose tolerance test on a man uh, who is long-term keto, uh, like myself, after a year and a half of carnivore. I would have failed it which means, quote unquote, would have had an excessive insulin response and excessive glucose response. But if you then fed me honey or fruit or any carbohydrate for that matter for three days, I could go back and that OGTT would be completely normal, um, meaning that I would have suddenly the, uh, the, uh, the equipment in my body would be in place to handle all that glucose. So this is physiologic insulin resistance. If somebody's actually metabolically broken and you do that, they're never going to get better in those three days because they are broken at a much deeper level having to do with cellular membranes and mitochondria and fat cells. So I guess, again, I apologize for the long-winded explanation, but th this is all to say that people who are long-term keto and introduce um, foods with uh, sugars, be it glucose, fructose, or some combination of those two, uh, may have uh, an excessive response due to physiologic insulin resistance, which we'll correct shortly. And um, I think that there are some benefits to a lot of people to having some uh, appropriate intentional insulin signaling and the complete abrogation of insulin signaling is uh, problematic for many people at the level of electrolytes and hormones and things like that for many individuals. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So uh, would you say like the, um, the, the actionable advice here is go carnivore for a few months until you fix your metabolism, make sure you never get any uh, seed oils and highly processed uh, food and high carbohydrates. But then after you're fixed, um, uh, so what, you have uh, some fruits every day, some honey every day, or once a week, or what do you think? See how you feel. Um, if people are out there thriving, don't change anything. Stay carnivore if that's what you want to do. But if you're getting muscle cramping or heart palpitations, arrhythmias, or you're seeing the hormones drop, or your sleep is interrupted, or you know any of those things where you're feeling a little bit cold, uh, and yeah, introduce try introducing a little bit of carbohydrates. Give it maybe uh, three to five days and just see as an experiment and, and then kind of go from there. And if you want to do more sort of close analysis, you can wear a continuous glucose monitor or you can work with a physician who will um, check things like your lipids, uh, your fasting insulin and all these things. And I think what you'll see is that 
Um, your fasting insulin won't go up, <laughs> it'll actually go down, as will your fasting glucose and many other metrics. So, but ultimately the goal is just to get somebody to the highest quality of life. And if they're already in good quality of life, there's no need to change anything. Again, it's just this lateral move that gives them a little more freedom if they're not totally dialed in. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating for me, but I'm not sure I'm uh, psychologically ready to start experimenting with plants again. <laughs> I don't want to stick to my ribeyes. <laughs> You're thriving, man. Don't worry about it. Yeah. All right. Um, Kiki, who is also an ex-vegan and a regular here, has a couple questions for you. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for, you know, going in depth in a lot of things that I haven't heard. Um, and yes, I am a Bitcoin carnivore like yourself, uh, thanks to Saifedean's influence. So are you looking at this um, kind of global eat lancet, pro-plant, anti-meat movement and what do you have solutions for how we can preserve our access to meat in the near and far future and also have discussions or what the point of view would be sharing with others why uh, cows are not destroying the planet. Yeah, I mean, this is such an important conversation. I think I'll take a page out of Safety's book and say that Bitcoin fixes this. Um, you know, if you can pay your farmer with Bitcoin, then good luck to the U.S. government or anyone else limiting that or regulating that. Um, you can imagine all sorts of problems downstream if, uh, if they want to do central bank digital currencies or anything else and they're going to track you. Be like, well, you can't pay for meat or we're going to tax that or this is, you, know, you have to report that in taxes. I mean, I don't know how this would ever happen. It would lead to a wide revolt and a lot of more people would move to Costa Rica. But um, I think that it's... I think that it's, it's a lot like Bitcoin in the sense that I, I do not think that the U.S. government will ever regulate it to that extreme. I mean, very fascinatingly, and I posted this on my Instagram, when uh, T.H. Chan from Harvard, um, their School of Public Health, posted that Eat Lancet thing, they, they had to disable the comments because so many people, and this is just on T.H. Chan, Harvard's like Instagram, not even like my Instagram, um, people just went off on them. They were like, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. So I think it's happening. Um, and I think that hopefully um, this is why I do the work that I do. And I think there's a lot of people who, who support this work and who understand it, who, are, who have a bigger platform than I, um, you know, Joe Rogan, others who hopefully will continue to like champion this at a broader level. And I'll just keep doing the work that I do. And I think if a, if a critical mass of people start to realize like, oh, we're being fed slop, we're being fed industrial processed slop, um, then they, they will just they'll speak out and this will never happen. Um, and that's my hope. And I think that that's, that's why the work is so critical to just educate people to the point that they're, they're awake uh, and they see that this is just absolute um, propaganda and it's wrong. And to your point about the environmental stuff, I mean, this is perhaps the most fascinating conversation to me at this point. And um, I know uh, Safety Dean had uh, Patrick Moore on the podcast and Alex Epstein. I recently had both of them on my podcast and I've been talking to him a lot about this stuff too. So I think these, these environmental conversations are so relevant. And it's, it's fascinating to me that many of the things I care about, animal agriculture, humans eating animals, cryptocurrencies, sovereign individuals, are being regulated under the guise of climate. You know, China moving all the Bitcoin mining. You know, it's, it's bad for climate. It's like, well, this is crazy. Like, I've realized that in my own work, it's going to be important to really challenge this climate zeitgeist. And um, it's it's more, uh, it's at least as entrenched as veganism, if not more. Um, so it's going to be a pretty big uh, juggernaut to, to attack, but I'm going to try. Did that answer your question? 
Yeah, I think I'm quite optimistic about the climate thing. I'm, I'm going to attack it head on in my next book in the Fiat Standard. I'm just going to really come at it. Everybody's uh, usually uh, trying to basically seeding the fundamentals of the argument, which is, you know, no, we are destroying the planet, but here's how we can stop destroying it. Or here's how my idea is not so terrible. So please don't cancel you know, don't cancel my food, please. It's not so bad for destroying the earth. But I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that we're not destroying the earth with carbon dioxide. Maybe there is an impact. Honestly, I'm 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 a little bit skeptical of even people like uh, Patrick Moore, and I challenged him on this. I'm a little bit skeptical that we know um, what the impact of our emissions really is. And I think, um, you know, it, it's probably true that it's almost certainly true that it leads to more greening but the idea that we're changing the temperature of the earth in my mind seems quite outlandish because the earth is a really big thing and the tiny tiny little carbon dioxide particulates in the atmosphere is such a tiny concentration it really doesn't make sense i think variations in the sun in in just the stuff that's between us and the sun that's likely to have a much more uh, uh, meaningful impact on temperature. And I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that you can't just uh, you, you can't just substitute uh, emotional manipulation for scientific evidence. Like you need to present, you're asking the planet to stop eating beef and to stop using the energy sources that allow us to survive winter. You're asking us to go live in an, an absolutely absurd, impossible uh, pre-industrial vegan dystopia where um, we're somehow not going to be using all the energy sources that we've discovered over the last 500 years that make our life possible. You need to present some pretty compelling arguments for that. You know, the, the boy who cries wolf is, is not just saying, you know, there's a wolf hide in your home. He's saying, let's burn down the entire town and um, stop there being a town here just in case so, so that the wolf won't find us. Like, you need you you need a far more convincing story if you're asking people to basically destroy 500 years of civilization um, out of fear. And I think more and more people are waking up for it. Um, M.D. Schellenberger, a longtime environmental activist, wrote a great book, Apocalypse Never, on this, and uh, Patrick Moore as well. And also Steve Poonin, who was Obama's scientific advisor, wrote a book uh, called um, Unsettled. On just and, and he's a prime scientist, and you know he's went into the details on this and he says, yeah, the idea that, you know, this is settled science and you can't argue with this is absurd. Obviously, whenever you hear that, you know that it's, that you're, you're being tricked. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm quite optimistic uh, about, but then again, I'm usually optimistic about, about a lot of things and uh, I can be quite delusional in my optimism. So uh, <laughs> take that, uh, with, take that warning with it. All right, um, Stefano, uh, what are, you have a question? Yes, yes. Um, thank you, Saif. This is the first seminar I'm attending, um, and it's great to be part of your membership network. Um, and thank you, Dr. Saladino. Very interesting. My question is the following. Um, every other week or very often, there is a new study coming out that criticizes meat and saturated fat. Um, it's, it, it happens periodically every month. There is a new one, and then it gets broadcasted in you know the health um professional networks, by mainstream media, and so on. So what do you think are the main flaws of these studies? Uh, great question. They're, they're all observational. This is a really, really important point to understand that is mm -hmm. never discussed by the media. They sort of, they always 
subtly insert the word associated with or you know is correlated with or mm. may may cause and there are no interventional studies being done with meat uh, that are published now. There are some people like um, Stefan Van Villette uh, is doing some studies with Fred Provenza, looking at the influence of red meat in the setting mm -hmm. of, a, of a whole food diet that is otherwise quote unquote healthy. It's a diet that will have vegetables and fruit in it. But I think that that will be a, a step in the right direction. But the problem is that all of these studies are just, they're all observational. Mm. And they, the, the general public, unfortunately, is never educated to be, you know, really vigilant for that word associate or correlate because it just means nothing. Mm. Um, it's the Western narrative that's been in play for 70 plus years. Uh, and it's the same thing. I mean, I was out surfing in the ocean yesterday with a friend of mine who's from Argentina. And he was talking about his friends who were Argentinians here in, in Costa Rica. And he said, I was talking to them about the work that you do, Paul. And they said, oh, yeah, I mean, of course, we love meat, but uh, we know it's bad for us. It's like they think mm. of meat as smoking. There are just there are people who just choose most of the people in the world who choose to eat meat are, are, are going to do other things because they, they love meat so much. This, this like, you know, lizard brain, this evolutionary brain is so powerful for them mm -hmm. that they say, all of your research be damned. I'm going to eat meat because I love it. And then, <laughs> it, the problem is that these people are also the people who are more likely to do cocaine or drink mm -hmm. alcohol or right. smoke cigarettes because they're like, I just want things that make me feel good. And of course, the fallacy here is that there's no, this is not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, people can eat meat and they could see meat as a health food, perhaps the health food. Um, but yet they're the people that eat meat in the Western world are the people who are having more unhealthy behaviors, like these mm -hmm. Argentinians. Um, and so when we look at epidemiology, it's no surprise that over and over and over, meat looks bad. And when we look at interventional studies uh, with meat, it doesn't look bad at all. And there's only been a few done, but it's very clear that you can add eight ounces of meat to somebody's diet in, you know, at the exclusion of grain-based carbohydrates and all of the metrics get better. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's this complete uh, fallacy and it's super frustrating. And when I have debates with vegans, they'll say this, well, you have to look at the majority of the evidence. Well, not when the majority of the evidence is garbage observational studies. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so funny because Joel Furman, who's a prominent uh, uh, sarcopenic vegan, um, was on my podcast and he used mm -hmm. the same language that people use uh, when they're talking about climate, you know, like, mm -hmm. well, well, the majority of scientists all agree, you know, well, 97% of scientists agree that climate change is, is real and is caused by humans. And it's like, it's the same thing, you know, 97% of scientists in the nutrition world agree mm -hmm. that meat is bad for humans and plants are clearly good. Well, who cares, right? There's, right? I've got 2 million years of evidence that, that humans have been eating meat that made us human. And uh, if you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, uh, nobody, no, people are happy to look at anthropology, or excuse me, they're happy to look at epidemiology, but they just want to ignore the anthropology. How do you explain the Hadza? How do you explain mm -hmm. the Akung, who will often meet, eat four and a half pounds of meat per day uh, when they have a kill and they don't have heart disease, uh, you know, right. to any particular amount. So there's just this discordance. And this to me is um, one of the, the greatest hoaxes, swindles that's been done upon the mainstream consciousness in, mm -hmm. in our in our generation is, is that nobody understands what observational research is and how misleading it is. And why do you think there are so few interventional studies being done with respect to meat? Funding. Funding? Okay. Yeah. Who benefits? Mm. Who benefits? Um, I don't see many regenerative farmers driving Ferraris. <laughs> you know, 
the, the like who funds it? Does the meat lobby fund it? Because then the plant-based advocates will say, oh, it's funded by the meat lobby. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just think that's, I mean, in the future, I'm building a nonprofit, an animal-based research foundation nonprofit, and we want to fund more of these studies. That's the goal. But, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to Stefan Van Villiet about where he gets his funding from, um, because I just think that people don't want to do this research. It's not in vogue. Uh, it, it's just, um, and again, I'm not, I'm not a PhD bench researcher. Thank, thank heavens. Um, but I think that if you, if you want to do this type of research, you're not super popular. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody knows that meat is bad for you. Get in line, you know, All give right. us another study that shows that vegetables are good, uh, please. And, and don't you dare question the mainstream narrative around climate either. That'll get you canceled in, in the academic world too. So I hope that's not an overly simplistic answer, but I, I think it's probably the, the correct one as much as I can tell. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, the uh, discussion of epidemiology studies leads us uh, very nicely to a question that uh, Peter has for you on uh, uh, another calamity of the pseudoscience that is epidemiology, and that is the, the COVID hysteria. So Peter, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Um, so, yeah, having read your book, I noticed that you dwelled quite a lot on that distinction between interventional studies and epidemiological studies, and you were quite critical of the general epidemiological method for drawing cause and effect conclusions. And so my question was going to be about what your views are regarding the very prominent role that epidemiolog- epi- epidemiologists now play in all of our lives in, in determining where we can and can't go, when we can and can't cross cross borders, um, how we can behave. Uh, do you think that, uh, are you worried about the kind of prestige that is being given to this, this uh, discipline, given the limitations you point out in your book? Are you concerned about the trends that have taken place over the past 18 or so months? Well, yes, definitely. The trick is that it's very difficult to study the things that people need to make decisions about with COVID without roping in epidemiologists, you know, population studies, just that is epidemiology. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to do that. I think that if we look at the track record of people over the last uh, 16 to 18 months, it's been pretty bad. Um, you know, a lot of the models, we know all about climate models and how wrong those are. Well, most of the COVID models were completely wrong. Um, and yet nobody apologizes. They just wait for people to forget, you know, they were predicted for, you know, 10 to 100x the amount of deaths that we've had. Uh, not that any uh, loss of life due to COVID is okay or, you know, uh, should be minimized, but, you know, the, the models that were put in place were, were generally very, very wrong. And I do think it's a problem. I'm not sure how to solve it because ultimately uh, the population dynamics are an epidemiologic question. I just think we have to be very careful about what we, what we do with that. Um, I did see something that came out the other day saying, again, it was epidemiology. It said vegans are 75, 73% less likely to have severe COVID. And so, you know, the plant-based is published in the plant-based news. And of course it's the same old bullshit story, right? Well, people who are vegans or vegetarians are much more likely to have healthy behaviors, much less likely to smoke, drink, be obese, uh, and have you know, probably a bunch of processed food in their life. And just because meat gets associated with those things, because it's traditionally been seen as a rebellious food, um, then uh, it, it looks bad for us meat eaters in terms of COVID outcomes. But I think that uh, if they were if they were more careful, and there's plenty of epidemiology out there that does that goes to the next step and actually contrasts vegetarians with omnivores who do healthy behaviors. 
There's a study called the UK Shopper Study and a few others that show this very clearly that, that when you adjust for omnivores with, quote, healthy behaviors, all of the benefits of a vegan or vegetarian diet go away. And they, they look about the same as an omnivore in terms of everything, um, except their muscle mass, which will always be much less, um, and their overall health. But in terms of their life expectancy or their longevity, you know, any benefits to a vegan or vegetarian diet go away when you include this normalizer for omnivores who have quote, healthy behaviors. So that's the point that's always left out of these studies. But um, I guess to your question, Peter, it's just, tricky um, to to sort out like how we how we go about things without the epidemiologists. I'm not sure I have an answer for that, but I would just say that uh, it seems like on a daily basis right now that the, um, the hysteria and the, the stupidity can't get much worse. It's just, I don't know what we're doing right now. Yeah, to, to your credit, Paul, you were one of the uh, very few people who uh, made the point that uh, Perhaps instead of worrying about uh, putting diapers on your face and locking other people, or putting diapers on other people's face and locking them at home, perhaps you might want to consider your own metabolic health. And this is just one of these awful hate facts that uh, nobody wants to think about. For which I was reported to the medical board in California by a vegan physician on Twitter. Wow. And he then encouraged his followers to also report me to the medical board. Nothing ever came of it. And I, I sort of um, invited the medical board to have a conversation with me about nutrition, but I thought that was particularly ironic when in the beginning of COVID, I said, you know, maybe it's time to think about um, just letting people live their lives and maybe we should focus them on some other things. And uh, I said, well, you should report this guy to the medical board. So it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, thank you very much, Paul, for joining us. This has uh, been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, and, you know, um, just so that we're clear, I do not endorse the consumption of uh, plants and honey and fruits. I will happily entertain and discuss those things. But, you know, um, if, if you have some uh, bananas and then uh, bad things happen to you, don't blame it on me. <laughs> you can blame it on me. It's okay. You can blame it on me. Blame it on Paul. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much. And um, I look forward to chatting more and more with you either on my podcast or yours. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks, Safe. I appreciate it. Cheers. Take care.